0: Mark chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning, Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21 of Mark 8, so Mark 8, 1 through 21. Now sometimes, sometimes more than others, it's difficult to to determine the best place to to break these these passages down. So however many months ago when I sat down, I I broke down Mark into, into sections in the sermons, uh, that I want to preach on, and, and sometimes it's difficult to to break down and, and think. Well, how how does this all fit together? Um, and so I'm just going to tell you at the front end why why we're looking at these 21 verses. Um, it's because I, I think there's a theme here. I think that that verses one through 21 there there's a, a a pattern. And if you look all the way down in verse 21, when Jesus the last the last Question: the last sentence of of this passage, Jesus says, do you not yet understand? I think that's the key for understanding all that comes before in verses 1 through 21. And so what we'll see is we'll see this this miracle followed by this interaction with the Pharisees followed by an interaction with the disciples. And with the Pharisees and the disciples, we're going to see a lack of of faith. We're going to see unbelief or or at least dullness in the the disciples' case. And and so what we're going to see is that in light of this miracle... We still see unbelief among the Pharisees and the disciples, which is even more shocking because they were not only there for the miracles, but they actually collected the leftovers. So they saw this miraculous provision that that Jesus um, performed. And so the the purpose of this passage, and and the reason that we're doing it all together is because I think there is one main purpose, and that the main idea of the passage, the main idea of this sermon is simply that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior, I think that's what we need to come away knowing, that, that his identity is the main idea. It's not the miracle that's the main idea. It's not the Pharisees' demand for a sign that's the main idea. It's not even the disciples' dullness that's the main idea. It's the fact that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. So, so that's my aim this morning, is to, to have us leave here knowing and rejoicing in the fact that, that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior and so that's the main idea. Let's, let's read. You follow along. I'll read verses 1 through 21. Having set that, that foundation, let, let's read our passage. So I'm going to begin in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he, that is Jesus, called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. Verse 7, And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he, that is Jesus, sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmenutha. Verse 11, Then Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, No sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Verse 14, Now they had forgotten, that's the disciples, to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he, that's Jesus, cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Well, our passage breaks down in, into three three pretty, pretty clear sections, so we're going we're gonna to work through these, one, two, three. So first we see the feeding of the 5,000, the, the miracle in verses 1 through 10, then, then second we'll look at the blind Pharisees, or, or the blindness of the Pharisees there, that second section, verses 11 through 13, and then finally, the, the last section, verses 14 to 21, we'll see the purpose, the purpose for the feedings, um, and the purpose of the section. So, so let's start there with looking at verses 1 through 10, the feeding of the 4,000. Now, if you are with us a few weeks ago, you remember in, in Mark chapter 6, you may remember there's a very similar miracle story, right? And you remember there's there a feeding of the 5,000. So if you're with us, some, some people will look at these two stories and they'll see the similarities and, and obviously there, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, the biggest one being that, that Jesus takes a small amount of food and bread, or of bread and fish, and he miraculously provides for a large amount of people. Okay, so so that, that's the, the big picture in both of these, and in both these cases, his disciples gather up excessive amounts of leftovers, in fact, more leftovers than they started with, it seems. okay. So, so they're very similar, and, and some people will look at these and say, well, that obviously didn't happen twice, it happened once, and Mark is just telling it two different times in his gospel. And so some people will, will, will say that, they'll say, well, it just happened once, we don't ha- it's not necessary to believe that it happened twice, um, which which I'm... I'm going to argue why I think it did happen twice, um, but, but other people, some people won't even, won't even bother wondering if it happened because they, they dismiss the, the possibility of miraculous just completely and say, well, miracles don't happen. So this, both stories are made up and neither are based on a historical reality, um, which let me just make clear, these are the same people who would say that Jesus couldn't have been born as a virgin, um, Jesus couldn't have multiplied this bread and fish, and, and they would also say that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. Now, just so you know, right, orthodox historical Christianity has never believed that the miraculous can't happen. In fact, our entire faith hinges upon the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Okay? So, so we, we don't have to be afraid of, wow, something miraculous happened. that God can do it. We take God at His word and we believe it. We don't have to be afraid. In fact, if we're afraid, we don't have a faith. Right? The resurrection is what we base at all, and that's what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, But here, here's why I, I want to say that, that it, I don't think it's unreasonable to think these are two separate accounts. Yet, they're, broadly, they're similar, but, but when you get to the details, there's a lot more differences than similarities. So think about the number of loaves. That's different. The number of fish. That's different. The number of people. That's different. The number of leftover baskets. All of these are details that, that these gospel writers would have been focused on, on maintaining. Right. These are things they'd focus on, these numbers, And and they're different. But the main two reasons, and I'll just briefly mention these. First, the location is different. So remember in the broader context of Mark's gospel, he's he's been been operating in, in these Gentile lands. And so whereas the first feeding was on the other side of the sea in Jewish land, or Jewish majority Jewish populated land, now he's on the other side of the sea What she argued is Gentile land. So remember the the Syrophoenician Syrophoenician woman, her daughter was healed. And then last week, the the deaf man and and the man who couldn't speak, both of these are Gentile in Gentile lands. And so Jesus and Mark, in recording these events, is making a clear point that Jesus is the Savior for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. And so now, yes, he fed the Jews in chapter 6, but now... This is a, a majority Gentile population that he's doing the same exact thing for. He's a sufficient Savior for, for all peoples. One, one commentator says that by narrating the second miracle in the Decapolis and placing it in the context of Jesus' interaction with Gentiles, Mark implicitly affirms that the invitation to the Messianic banquet, that the invitation to come and eat and be filled, is not for the Israelites alone, but for all people everywhere, and so the location is different, and I think that's important that we maintain that one happened here and one happened in six, but the the second reason I think that these are are two separate miraculous events is because in verses 19 and 20 of our passage, Jesus himself refers to two separate feedings. He says, when I fed the 5,000, how many basketfuls were left over? When I fed this 4,000, how many basketfuls were left over? You see, Jesus understands or thinks that they were two separate accounts, one of 5,000, one of 4,000. And so you either have a confused Jesus who can't remember, or you have Mark who is, an inten- who is intentionally misleading people with the words of Jesus, neither of which I, I think is a good option. I think a better option is two very similar miracles happen. They're distinct, they're similar, but they are different. And so in verses 1 through 10, we have a second miraculous feeding, and so we have this crowd of people there in verse 2. Mark says that they've been following Jesus for three days. And so we assume this is a teaching ministry, the, the, the kind of the, the pattern that Jesus has followed. They're, 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 they're following him, he's teaching, he's probably healing, but they've been with him for three days. And they've come now to a desolate place. They're in a desert. There's no neighboring villages or towns around. And after three days, they get to this place and all their food is gone. So maybe they had enough for a couple days but after three days, there's no food left. They haven't, they haven't broken off from Jesus' teaching to go get food. They've said, no, we're, we're staying with this man. And so, so they have no food. And so Jesus, in verse 2, very similar to, to the previous account, he has compassion on him. His motivation for, for this miraculous um, th- this multiplication of food is his compassion. He says, I have compassion on these people. Just like, remember, the sheep without a shepherd in Mark 6, now he's concerned for the well-being of this people. They're out of food, he says, if I send them away, it's too far for them to go. They, they won't make it. They'll faint on the way. And so, he says, Let, let's feed them. Now, as I just mentioned, think about these people. They've, they've forgotten or they've forsaken their physical need for food in the pursuit of the words and teaching of Jesus. That says something about these people, doesn't it? It says also something about the words of Jesus. But, but so, verse 4 Jesus notes their need of food and the dilemma that they're facing. He says, I have compassion. I'm not going to send them away. In verse 4, the disciples say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And so we as the readers, coming off of Mark 6, we say, are are you guys so dumb? Right? Didn't you just see 5,000? Are you so dull? Are you, are you, how in the world can you ask that question? Now, now, I'm not sure exactly how to take this. Okay, we, we don't know tone of, of this question. But here's a few things that, that I think we can safely assume um, about this question. First, they certainly remember the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, some, one commentator argues, well, it, was just, it must have happened a long time ago so they forgot about it. I don't care how long has passed, you're going to remember what happened with the feeding of 5,000. So I think they remember what's happened. But here, here's where I think, I think it's a different question. I don't think it's as dull as it seems, because, because if you notice the question, they seem to be concerned with the setting rather than the task. If you remember back in Mark 6, Jesus tells them, he says, you feed them. He says, you do it. And they say, do you know how much money that would cost? Who in the world could buy that much food? Do you know how much food it would take to feed this crowd? So the first time, the task, they can't do it. And so Jesus reveals himself as any, what's impossible for, for these men Jesus does, but here they seem to be concerned with the, with the setting. So they're in a desolate place. There's no resources there. Specifically, there's no neighboring towns or villages. Whereas before, they say, yeah, well, the disciples say, Jesus solved this problem by sending them to the to nearest Chick-fil-A or 7-Eleven or just send them away to the store to get food. Well, here there's no food. There's no stores. There's no villages. And so there's no resources. So I don't think their question is, is too... We shouldn't be too hard on them for this question, though certainly afterwards in 14 through 21, they are hard-hearted, but they wonder, how could it happen? And again, assume, what would it take for the disciples to say, oh yeah, Jesus, why don't you do your trick again, right? What would that say? They don't want to presume on his ability to do it, even if they believe, they might ask, well, how are you going to do it here? Okay, so they ask the question. Again, maybe some of your questions are left unanswered, but... We see, following their question, verses 5 through 10, the, the familiar occurrence of events. The disciples, seven loaves of bread. Jesus says, okay, sit everyone down. He, he takes, he blesses the loaves, then he breaks them, gives it to the disciples to pass out. And then verse 7, as kind of an aside, oh yeah, and there were some fish too. Maybe someone in the crowd sees the bread and says, oh, wait, wait a minute. If he's doing that with the bread, let, let's see what he can do with my fish. Who knows? Someone in the crowd offers the fish, or maybe they, they just, they, they find it. But Mark says, he blesses the fish also separately and then he, he passes that out by way of disciples. Again, in verse 8, the important remark, they ate and were satisfied. They were about 4,000 people. And so again, this miraculous feeding, Jesus sends them away. And so we see the compassion of Jesus overflowing into this miraculous display of power. So, so close on scene 1, we, we transition to verses 11 through 13 in scene 2. So look there in verse 11. They sail across the sea. So they they get into the boat at the end and they sail to the to the other side. Okay, now now it says that Dow Manutha, so your footnote may may have a, a note on that, Magadan or Magdala. There's really no historic record of where that town is, so no one knows exactly where it is. People assume it's where maybe Mary Magdalene came from. Um, I, I, I don't have a, a good answer for you other than that it was a place. And that's where they went. the, the thing that I want to point you to is that they cross cross from the Decapolis, from the region of the Decapolis, where they were with the feeding, over to the other side of the sea, to the Jewish area, for this interaction with the Pharisees. And then in verse 13, it's a very short stay because then they they go back to the other side after this interaction with the Pharisees. Do you see verse 13? He left them, got in the boat again, and went across. And so it's just very short. They're here, they cross, have this interaction with the Jews, then they go right back. And so it's as if Mark is recording this interaction just to show, and I think he's doing it to show that the Pharisees are hard-hearted in light of this, this miraculous display of power. The Pharisees continue to, to reject, but then also the, the disciples are more like the Pharisees than we would probably like to admit. And so he's putting the interaction with the Pharisees right with the interaction with the disciples, and both are showing unbelief or a lack of faith. And so, so what, what do we make of these, these few verses here with the, with the Pharisees? Well, the key, the recognition here, or, or what we to understand this interaction is understanding what do they mean when they say they're seeking a sign. So you see there in verse 11, they, they came to him, they began to argue with him, seeking a sign from heaven to test him. Now, now most people, when, when I read that, I think, well, they just want to see him do a miracle. And I want to say, well, what are they asking for? Haven't they seen it? Now, they're, they're not asking for, for just another miracle. It's not like they're saying, hey, do, do a trick for us. We want to see one more. That's not what they're asking. They're, they're asking for a sign. Is they're concerned with, with validation or evidence. right? It's a sign from heaven. They want to know clearly from God that this man is who he says he is. Okay, They, they, they want to remember earlier in Mark, they, they were saying, well, he, he cast out demons by the spirit of Beelzebub. Right? And so now they're, they're, they're validation. They want to know the source of his power. They're not denying that he does miracles. They want to know Who are you from God? Give us a sign to prove to us that that God has, in fact, sent you. So they're not requesting a miracle. They want want to know that he's a trustworthy messenger. Now, so they're asking for attestation from God, a sign that he is, in fact, who he says he is. Now, Jesus' response in verse 12, he doesn't say, okay, here's your sign. Instead, verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. And so unlike last week, remember, he, there was a sigh before he healed the man. The context makes clear that this is a deep sigh of indignation, a sigh of grief. Okay? He, he's frustrated with these Pharisees and, and the, the people, the generation that they represent. He's well aware that they're, they're seeking to argue with him, that they're, they're doubting him, that they're questioning him. And and their their demand for a sign is it puts their unbelief on full display. They are clearly unbelieving. I mean, think of, think about what they're asking. So, so what are they communicating to Jesus by asking for a sign? First, they say, "Okay, give us some more evidence so that we can judge you rightly. We're going to determine whether you are who you say you are." They want a sign so they can judge whether whether to believe them or not. Which is the second thing they're communicating, namely their unbelief. We don't believe what you say or what you've done. Yeah, we've seen it, we've heard about it, right? We've we've seen the the people that have been healed, we've heard the testimony of the people that have been healed, we've, we've seen all that, we've heard all that, but we want more. We need something more. Their unbelief is clear. It's on full display. And so we as readers are sitting here thinking, well, how in the world could you miss that? Pharisees, how could you miss it? I mean, what more could this man do or say? In fact, I think Mark would have us conclude if they don't believe him yet, they never will. If they don't believe him yet, no sign is going to change their mind. They have plenty of evidence, which is why I think Jesus says no sign will be given this generation. They don't need a sign to discern whether or not Jesus is from God. One coming here says, They request for a sign. It's unnecessary, since they have already been blessed with the power and presence of the kingdom of God in Jesus' words and deeds. They've got every sign they need to make a discerning decision regarding Jesus. But they remain in their hard-hearted nature, their, their hard-hearted stance. And so in verse 13, he leaves them in their unbelief, gets in the boat, and goes to the other side, which, which then transitions us to our last section, the purpose of the feedings, or, or the purpose. Why, why does Jesus do this? Why are these, these occurrences, why are they all recorded together? And so here we, we find the main idea of the passage. So verse 14, Mark picks up the story... As Jesus and his disciples, they're making their way back across the sea. Okay, so they, they, they came from one side. They go over, have this interaction with the Pharisees. Jesus, maybe abruptly frustrated, he goes back with his disciples to the other side. And in verse 14, notice it's, it's somewhat of a strange observation. Verse 14, "...now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat." So they're sailing back to the other side, and apparently because of maybe they, they left too soon, it was an abrupt ending, whatever the case, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread with them. Guess they, have one, they have one loaf. Some people say, well, that one loaf is referring to Jesus. Maybe. I think, it's, I think it's fine to say they have one loaf, and that's all they have for this group of 13 in the boat. And so down at verse 15, Jesus is going to pick up this idea of bread and he's going to in, intend to convey something to them. So he says in verse 15, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So do you see? Do you see what's happening here? This is an example of two totally different conversations taking place within one conversation. You see, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they say, I can't, whose fault is it that we forgot the bread? So Jesus is tending to convey one thing, but they're, they totally miss it. He's saying one thing, the disciples are hearing something totally different. I mean, I thought about that. I, I couldn't come up with a good example. It's maybe, maybe better that that's the case, but, but if you've been married for any amount of time, you can probably relate to what's going on here, right? One person is on one level, the other is on the totally different level, and you're, you're talking by one another. And so Jesus is warning them about the unbelief. That's, it, doesn't, it doesn't specifically identify what the leaven of of the Pharisees and of Herod is. And in Matthew, it said it's the the teaching. Well, here I think it's pretty clear that it's unbelief. That's the unbelief is is what the leaven is. So he's warning them against the unbelief they just encountered. So he's taking this opportunity of discussion of bread to warn them, be on guard against the Pharisees and Herod. And, And both of these examples of people who, as we saw, they refuse to believe. They seek signs They're slow to believe, and their unbelief is dangerous, and Jesus wants to warn them about that. Be on guard, disciples. And in verse 16, the only thing the disciples are concerned about is the the fact that they had no bread. It's as as if when Jesus says, beware of the leaven, they hear, oh, bread, oh, shoot, we forgot it. All they hear is a reference to bread, and and they begin quarreling about whose fault it was that there wasn't enough bread. And so they totally miss the reference to the Pharisees and to Herod. And in fact, ironically, the fact that they start arguing about the lack of bread proves the point that they need to be aware of the leaven. The fact that they're arguing about the bread means they're missing the point. They need to heed the warning. They've missed it completely. I mean, think about these disciples. They've they've just missed the point completely. They've seen Jesus feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. They've they've seen Jesus feed 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. They've they've witnessed both, and they've also collected basketfuls of leftovers after both of these, and here they are, worried about one loaf not being enough for 13 people in the boat. Do you see that They've missed the point. Why are they concerned about not having enough bread? Do you see that? How in the world? They've missed it. They've missed the point completely. They don't realize, they don't understand that, that the one with them, that for Jesus, lack of bread is not a problem. They should look past this and see the identity of the one in the boat with them. They wouldn't be concerned about having only one loaf. And so Jesus, verse 17, aware of this, he says to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? And so Jesus is is rebuking his disciples with this series of, of sobering, Questions. Why are you talking about bread? Don't you realize that the amount of bread isn't an issue? Guys,'t how in the world have you, have you missed this? And so these men who have been following Jesus, they've been beholding miracle after miracle. They still don't get it. They miss it. Instead, it seems like they've become accustomed to the miraculous and they've completely ignored the purpose for the miraculous. Yeah, we remember, you remember the basketfuls of leftovers in both cases. But we don't remember who you are, the person who, who made the leftovers to abound. They miss the point. And so Mark is making painfully obvious to us as his readers, there isn't much difference between the Pharisees and the disciples. All these people are slow to perceive. But notice verse 20. I think verse 20 is, is, is significant. Verse 20, Jesus doesn't throw in the towel. He doesn't, he doesn't throw over the boat. I'm done with you guys look at all this time I've put in with you, you still don't get it. Rather, he patiently reminds them. He's patient with their unbelief. He asks two questions that lead them back to the miraculous feedings that they had witnessed. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves, how many basketfuls were left over? And they remember. It was 12. Yeah, we remember, Jesus. Well, how about the seven loaves for the 4,000? How many basketfuls did you take up? And they remember seven, Jesus. He reminds them, not only had they witnessed this miracle, he didn't say, well, how many did I feed? He says, how many basketfuls did you take of leftovers? And in each case, these leftovers were taken after everyone had eaten and was satisfied. These are leftovers. 5,000 had eaten and been satisfied. 4,000 had eaten and had been satisfied. And these are basketfuls of leftovers. And Jesus, it, it wasn't about the, the, the bread, it wasn't about the leftovers. It, it was about the one at whose command the bread multiplied, and that same one was still with the disciples. I mean, think about the 5,000 that were fed, they, they were probably hungry again, right? They, they weren't still with just these 4,000, they'd left them, they'd come back, but they had, they had dispersed, but these, these men, they're still with the one. They're still in the presence of the one who had, who had done this. The ones closest to Jesus, they're the ones who should have recognized the significance of the man in the boat with them. And they're the ones who, who still don't understand. And so he closes, do you not yet understand? So let me close with, with three applications from, from this passage, three applications that I see. The first one, the power of Jesus or the authority of Jesus, That's application one. I won't say too much here, it's, it's a similar point that was made back in, in Mark 6, but I simply want to point out again that Jesus displays this this divine authority, this divine ability to meet the needs of his people with inadequate resources. I mean, we can't explain away the power of Jesus on display here. Natural limitations don't limit Jesus. It's supernatural. He he multiplies bread and fish to feed an impossible amount of people. And that's what, what he does. And it's purposeful because he does it, his display of authority, his display of power, his his display of of compassion, they're they're always a means to an end. They're to lead us somewhere. So we we see him miraculously display this power in multiplying the bread, and it's to lead us somewhere. And it's it's always to lead us to him, to the one behind the signs, not the signs themselves. The signs lead us to Jesus. And and he he is God in the flesh. Again and again and again, displaying his authority over nature over wind and waves and sickness and disease and in bread and so we we ought to just pause and worship this man who who possesses divine equality this is god in flesh the second person of the trinity doing things that only god can do which then leads us to the second application the dangers of unbelief the dangers of unbelief. In, in both cases, both with the Pharisees and with the disciples, we see unbelief. Now, maybe they're, they're different levels, but, but at the bottom of both cases, there's unbelief. Now, I, I should say in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, the disciples are gonna get it. So, so the last on on the, the last Sunday in June, uh, we'll see we'll see the good confession of Peter. And he gets it. Who are you? Who do people say I am? The Christ, the Son of the Living God. So, so they're gonna get it. So even when Jesus questioned, do you not yet get it? Some people see that there's a sign of hope there. They're going to get it. It's going to take a while, but they're getting it. So, so they're going there. But here in our passage, both groups show the dangers of unbelief, the dangers that come, of, come from missing the point. And so with the Pharisees' case, I, I think it's safe to say that their unbelief stems from their pride. We need more evidence. We want to decide whether you are who you say you are or not. We, we need more proof. Prove yourself, O teacher. This is unbelief. They they refuse to deal with what they've already been given. Jesus has made it clear who he is. And they refuse their, their pride. Do you recognize the pride on display? Give us more evidence. And so the decision is going to determine whether or not Jesus is who he says he is or not. That's what they're thinking. Give us more evidence and we'll decide. Well, what they decide is not going to change the fact of who Jesus is. He is who he says he was, and they are to to receive the evidence and believe. Unfortunately, the the majority of their generation doesn't. And so the Pharisees, they they were in danger of missing the point. And in missing the point, when you you miss the the evidence of who Jesus is and and what Jesus has come to do, it, it leads to a missing of the salvation that had come through him. And what had come specifically to them as Jews, and through them as Jews, and they missed it. And so maybe that's, that's you here this morning. Maybe you like the Pharisees. Maybe you've yet to make up your mind regarding Jesus. Maybe you feel like you need more data, more, more evidence. If only I, I could know this. Or maybe, maybe if, if only you could show me this. I'd simply tell you, you've been given all the data you need. The data on display is sufficient for you. Your desire for a sign, your desire for, for more evidence is, is simply proof of, of your unbelief. You have been given evidence. The reality is Jesus has come, and with him has come salvation for all people who would believe, who repent and and put their faith in him. He's testified about himself. Jesus testified about himself. God the Father has testified regarding the Son. God the Spirit continues to testify concerning the, the Son. God has testified regarding this man. Look at the four Gospels. The four Gospels testify to who Jesus is. We have an empty grave to testify to the Son. And so so I'd urge you, beware of unbelief. Beware of thinking that that just a little more evidence would change your mind. No, you're you're not going to get any more. You've gotten all you're going to get, and it's sufficient for you to decide about Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian, I would urge you to repent, to, to trust in Jesus. Put your faith in Him salvation is available to anyone who would repent and believe. And so if that's you this morning, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. We're going to have a, a time of singing in a few minutes. You, you, can, you can come forward and talk to me then. But I would, I, would, I would call you to faith, to faith in Jesus. He is an all-sufficient Savior for you. But, but secondly, the, the disciples, they, they, are, they put on display this, this failure to believe. I mean, they'd been with Jesus. They'd heard Him teach. They'd seen His miracles. In one sense, they, they knew who He was, Yet in, in the everyday details of their life, when, when they're crossing the sea on a, on a pretty normal trip, okay, they're, they're crossing the sea, they're so nearsighted, they're, they're so focused on their present, oh, we only have one, one loaf of bread to feed all these people. They're so focused, they forget who's with him, Who's with them. They're, they're so concerned with not having enough bread for their small group, they forget that Jesus, the bread multiplier himself, is right there with them. So they're concerned about the here and now, and they forget Jesus. And, and so some of you, some of you, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to be reminded this morning that, that whatever lack, whatever concern that, that's weighing on you right now, whatever situation that seems too big for you to overcome, you need to be reminded that, that this passage tells us that the Lord is with us. There, there's no concern that is outside of the realm of His care in your life. You need to hear that this morning. He's with you. No, no crisis that you're facing, no, no concern that's weighing you down is too big for Him. The compassionate shepherd is with you. He will take care of you. Do you trust him? In the day-to-day, your decision, believer, is to decide whether or not you're going to trust him. Are you going to trust the trustworthy Savior? The the issue isn't whether or not he's trustworthy. That's not the decision. The decision is whether or not you're going to trust the trustworthy Savior. And so, Christian, beware of the dangers of unbelief in the smallest details of life. Lunch this afternoon to the greatest, next job, new home, whatever it is, trust, trust this all-sufficient Savior, which leads lastly to the final application and the main point of the, the passage, that, that the sufficiency of Jesus, Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. And so, so it's not simply to see, so it's this passage not simply to see a display of power and authority and say, oh, wow, that's neat, but rather to see the man behind this display of power to recognize and identify the one who has this power and authority. We are to recognize from this passage that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. There's nothing he's unable to accomplish. There's there's nothing he's unable to provide. With him, there is no lack. No lack, Christian, non-Christian. There's no lack with him, whether physical or spiritual, right? And here, it's physical provision, right? This hunger is no match for him. but, But let's not forget that this is the same man who in Mark 6 would say, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. That, that's not spiritual. That's not physical hunger. He's talking about that is eternal, soul satisfying hunger that he alone, as the bread of life, can satisfy. So there's no lack with him, physical or spiritual. He is the all sufficient provider of your physical needs, and the all sufficient provider of your spiritual need. Every one of them. And so for the Christian, this this all sufficiency it shows itself in everyday lives. It shows itself in our everyday lives. So we express. So, so it's not just say, oh, yeah, I believe that he's all-sufficient. Right? That, that's not where it stops. It, it works itself out in our everyday lives. And so we combat our fears. What are you afraid of? We, we combat our unbelief. We combat our doubt. We combat our feelings of insufficiency. All of these things we combat with the reality, reality that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is sufficient. We can confidently say, In the face of of all of these things that that are weighing in against us, that are pressing in on us, we can say, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And so let me encourage you, brother, sister in Christ, trust in the all-sufficient Savior and and work that trust out in everyday life. Christians believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Christians believe that He's sufficient for all their needs. And, And then... Believing that belief shows itself. We live confidently moving forward in the task that we've been called to. And so, so I'm going to close with, uh, with this illustration, which is going to hopefully give picture to, to what I'm talking about, what I'm, what I'm calling you and me to. So listen to this illustration. So it says, A certain tightrope walker publicized that he was going to walk across Niagara Falls. A large crowd gathered... He dusted his hands and his feet with powdered chalk. He grasped with both hands this pole that he used for balance. And he proceeded confidently across the rope. So you get the picture? Tightrope walker. He, he's ready. A large crowd gathers to see him cross. So he, Niagara Falls, this tightrope going across. He, he goes across, confidently across. He makes it to the other side. He not only went across, but also made a return trip. The crowd stood amazed, and they responded with cheers. The man proclaimed that he would do it again without his pole. Again, he successfully went over and back. As he stepped off the rope, he he turned to the crowd and he asked how many thought he could make a third trip, this time with a wheelbarrow. Some responded with confidence, while others with skepticism. Yeah, right, I, I like to see that. So he set off on his task and completed it with the greatest ease, across and back with the wheelbarrow. He then inquired of the crowd as to whether they believed he could do the same thing with the wheelbarrow full of cement. This time, the crowd responded, no doubt, no hesitation, with great confidence. Yeah, you can. We've learned better than to to doubt you. Again, he performed his feat with unbelievable ease, having completed these four trips successfully. He then asked the spectators if they believed that he could wheel a human being across the dangerous expanse. The response was unanimous. He could do it. And upon their reply, he turned to a gentleman and he said, All right, my friend, let's go. Do you see that? There's one thing to say, oh, yeah, he can do it. Jesus is all sufficient. Yes, I believe it. But it's another thing to get in the wheelbarrow and trust him. It's it's another thing to live it out, to trust him in the midst of fear, unbelief, doubt, of of just life. And so our call from this passage is to trust our all-sufficient Savior. Let's pray.